Hi, everybody. This is Jeannie Faulkner, and this is Common Sense Pregnancy, Parenting, and Politics, the podcast where we talk about all of that and so much more. I wrote the book, Common Sense Pregnancy, which is based on my good long career as a labor and delivery nurse. Um, And that's the book where I tell you what I think you need to know um, to navigate your prenatal care, labor, and birth. It's not just a basic how-to either. There's a bit of my story in there, both as a nurse, as a mother, and as a woman who's been through the healthcare system as a patient. There's stuff you should know because if you're pregnant or a new parent, you're discovering that healthcare surrounding pregnancy is not so straightforward. And there are a whole lot of people involved in your healthcare decisions besides you. So read that book, Common Sense Pregnancy. It's in all the bookstores and on Amazon. And then I want to make sure you guys start documenting your own pregnancy stories and your own life stories as a woman, as you become a mom. You can order mom's side of the story over on my website, jeanfaulkner.com and start writing yourself into your child's life story. So what's going on, everybody? It's the first week in September 2019, and back to school is in full force. I was, oh, it's just the sweetest thing. I was out in my yard early this week. It was, you know, pretty early in the morning, and the little girl that I've known since birth lives across the street, yelled at me, hi, Janie, and I yelled back, and uh, she was wearing her brand new pink backpack and some new stompy sneakers. And she had brand new bang trim. She was so dang cute. And she skipped down the front steps and yelled, I'm going to first grade. That's my bus. Bye. Stomp, stomp, stomp. And off she went. It was amazing. Oh yeah, she was. She was going to first grade. She was all that. Oh my God. To bottle that enthusiasm for life and be able to dole it out whenever we need it. Wouldn't that be a gift? And to know it's all ahead of you and to have the new shoes and accessories and bangs to go with it. That's living, babies. That's living. May we all have the confidence and swagger of a brand new first day of school first grader. So many parents are sending their babies off to preschool or kindergarten or high school or college this week. Oh, there are so many mixed emotions going on out there for fathers and mothers all over the world, all over the world. Parents are swelling with pride and they are shedding tears as their babies take these huge formal steps out in the world, away from home and in some ways into the influence of their very first other teachers, you know, before that. Mom, dad, and the immediate family, you know, maybe the nanny. Um, That's the people. Those are the people that are teaching our babies. Um, But once they enter the school system, whether it's preschool or first grade or college, it's exhilarating and it's heartbreaking. And there are a whole lot of folks out there who are walking around like this right now. So let's be careful with each other, okay? For me, I drove my youngest back for her second year of college recently, and I definitely shed a few tears on the way home after I helped her move back in. It wasn't as shocking and traumatic and gut-wrenching as her first year of college, which marked my official days as a mother to a child at home 
as over. That was a hard one. I'm not going to lie. It took me a bit to recover from that. And then I got my stride back and, you know, realized, oh, it's kind of nice. This having the house to ourselves thing. Oh, it's nice to have that free time. Um, And before you know it, it was the holidays and she was back and then it was spring break. And then before you know it, it's summer again and she's home for a few months. It goes quickly and year two is easier as is dropping them off for second grade and sophomore year of high school, right? Each one is a transition though. And it's, it's a marking of a mark of passage for parents as much as it is for children. So what's going on in the news this week? Um, In the news this week, I saw a really awful video from a Denver jail cell where a young woman labored and delivered her baby all alone. She screamed for help apparently nine times. And the whole event was watched and recorded on video. um, And the security guards were totally aware of what was happening. No one came to help her. She literally delivered her own baby in a bare jail cell with nothing and no one to assist her or to save her life should that should anything have happened. That is a blatant disregard for this woman in particular um, and the well-being of her child for sure. And it's just not the way that the system is supposed to work. These were individuals who made the choice to simply ignore a woman in labor. I've taken care of women in labor in hospitals that I've worked at um, who have come to us through the prison system. And the way it goes is that if a woman is pregnant and incarcerated um, and she needs any kind of medical care, she's supposed to be transferred to an appropriate medical setting for thorough evaluation and treatment. If she's in labor, she needs to go to the labor and delivery unit to have her baby. She is not supposed to be abandoned in a bare cell to deliver on her own. Wow. Wow. She's suing the prison. And I'm grateful this is on the news because the way women are treated out there, especially in regard to their health, is unacceptable and must change. And I'm kind of hoping this lawsuit brings about massive restructuring for how women are treated when they're in custody. They're women first, not prisoners. They're women. Okay, I got all mad. That is my rant for today. Let's take a super fast break and then get right back on it. All right, we're back now. And let's see. So for the past few weeks, we have been talking about mental health topics. And we've been talking about anxiety, depression, antidepressants, and other mental health care topics as they relate to pregnancy, breastfeeding, and parenthood. We also talked about some of the pregnancy complications that can crop up, you know, unexpectedly or even expectedly that can increase risk for mental health complications. You know, we're talking about things like gestational diabetes or hyperemesis gravidarum or postpartum depression. So... This week, I'd like to keep that conversation going, and especially in light of, you know, what we saw in that video we talked about before. I'd like to talk about birth trauma and mental health care. And this interview is actually a repeat of my chat from episode 83 with a United Kingdom psychiatrist, Dr. Rebecca Moore, uh, about how birth trauma impacts mothers, parents, and healthcare providers, because it hurts us too. Let's get Dr. Moore on the line. 
Hi, Becca. This is Jeannie. I'm here in Portland. Are you in London? I am in sunny London. Yeah. Oh, sunny London. Great. <laughs> yeah. So glad to hear it. It's sunny here in Portland, too. And I think that we have very similar weather patterns. People tell me that England and Oregon were the same. Yes, I think so, which is why we have to mention the sun, because it's not I know. given. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I talk about it far too often on my podcast. <laughs> I'm sure people are either looking forward to my weather report, which, by the way, it's freaking gorgeous here in Portland right now, or they're saying, oh, dear God, please let that woman stop talking about the gray drizzle. <laughs> well, Becca, let me um, just explain your job a little bit and then let's get talking shall we yeah absolutely so cool. i am a perinatal psychiatrist um working in east london so i work in the nhs and i work in the community with women through their pregnancy from any stage of pregnancy up to a year postnatally and that's with any kind of pre-existing mental health diagnosis or new onset illness of any kind. So that's a huge range of things, anxiety, depression, schizophrenia, bipolar, trauma, um, a huge range of presentations. And the way we work is really to support women to feel as well as possible through that transition to becoming a mum. So some of our listeners are not familiar with the NHS. And let me let me try to explain it. It's the yeah. National Health System. It's yeah. like the insurance system that provides health care for everybody in the UK. Is that correct? Yeah. So the National Health System, uh, Service has been in place since the 1950s. And it's an absolutely amazing institution. So... The basic premise is, is that healthcare is free at the point of access. So it means that wherever you live in the United Kingdom, you can walk into your local hospital and receive treatment for whatever type of condition you're presenting with. Including so, mental health care. Including mental health care. So we don't pay anything for our health care provision. Obviously, we're paying some through our taxation system but in you know certainly compared to the American system you can receive an absolutely amazing bespoke treatment program um, through your for your men, for your mental health through your pregnancy and you're not paying a penny you really can't here you really can't I mean there are certainly some women who have really high quality health insurance and you know are fortunate to live in a city that has you know, a variety of healthcare providers, including mental health, but that is really not the case in most parts mm -hmm. of the country. And, and even if, you know, we're, we're going through this, um, uh, this big healthcare crisis here where Congress is determining whether or not they're going to replace and repeal what's called Obamacare, yeah. which is a healthcare system that frankly works real well for me and my family. Mm -hmm. Um, and, you know, it's just a crazy time here. And the, the list of things that they would not cover and pay for um, includes mental health care, which is just, it's ridiculous. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah. the NHS is not perfect by any means, but, you know, if, if I compare it to the, to the U.S. system, you know, there is mental health provision through in every area. So, 
it will vary from area to area, but somebody with a mental health um, issue will be able to access mental health services yeah. throughout the whole of the United Kingdom. And in As some they areas, should be. And in some, you know, in some areas, the service will be utterly outstanding in terms of what is offered. Um, so it, and there's been a huge drive in the United Kingdom to raise mental health to have equal parity to physical health. Yeah. Which I think is completely right because you right. you can't have one without the other. You can't ignore one. They you know they're intertwined. So there's been a huge drive in in recent years to think about mental health services should be as accessible and as high quality as any physical health service that you would access. Yeah. So although there, it has its faults, in in reality, the the service that most people get via the NHS is very very good. Well, we kind of started with your job title and ran with it. I generally <laughs> like to ask my 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 guests right at the start, once we've talked about your job title, the big question, which is, who are you and what do you do? <laughs> That's such a big, big question, isn't it? I know. I know. I know. I am a passionate uh, supporter of women's mental health. So I've been in this field for a long time, over 20 years, and I'm really passionate about women receiving high quality, bespoke care that is centered on and led by them through their pregnancy to support their mental health. Mm-hmm. That's, that's me professionally, in mm-hmm. a nutshell. Mm-hmm. I think beyond work I'm lots of things um you know I'm a mum and I think that really informs my practice because Mm -hmm. I've been through birth and pregnancy and motherhood myself Mm -hmm. and I think that has really informed how I work um and I think that continues to inform how I work really it does doesn't it once you're a mom yeah absolutely yeah it changes the way that you look at everything the way that you approach everything. It's all different. Yeah, totally different. I mean, I naively thought that because I worked in this field, you know, I really understood what it was to be a mum. And boy, did I not understand (laughs) it until I went through it myself. You know, Boy, I was right there with you. I thought, oh, you know, I've seen loads of women and I'll really be okay and I'll understand how it is. I was so, so wrong. (laughs) Oh, me too. Me too. I had no idea. I really did, though. Like you, you know, I was a medical professional. I had seen lots of babies born. I knew what this was all about. Clearly, I knew best, actually. (laughs) And that is until I had my own baby. And then, of course, I knew nothing. Yeah, Yeah, totally, totally. And and also, I, I thought, oh, gosh, I probably look back and cringe at some of the advice I gave because... You know, it was given with the best intention, but uh-huh. probably very naive in that I hadn't been through that experience myself. Isn't it amazing how rigid our advice can be when we don't know what we're talking about? <laughs> yeah, and I think, you know, you do it with good intentions. And you, sure. And you think you're, you know, you're doing the right thing. But actually, until mm-hmm. you walk that journey yourself, mm-hmm. you, you probably shouldn't be handing out advice like maybe that, certainly yeah or maybe your advice should come with a caveat you know yeah, yeah. So sorry <laughs> yeah. To that I saw pre pre babies because I would definitely give much more 
hopefully realistic advice now. Probably, yeah. yeah. So you you say that you have a special passion and expertise in reducing birth trauma. And I'm wondering, you know, where did this come from? Yeah, so over the last um, probably five years, I just became aware of how many women were talking to me about their birth experience being traumatic. Mm-hmm. And it's probably something that I hadn't focused on much before or known much about before. And I just was hearing all these stories week in, week out of how difficult women were finding their birth experience. Mm-hmm. And it really prompted me to try to understand that and learn more about that. Um, it wasn't something that, you know, I wanted to be hearing at all. But I was just hearing week in, week out, these these terrible stories from women. And I suppose that came from the fact that, you know, these were women that I'd perhaps known from the second week of their pregnancy. Mm -hmm. So I really knew them. And, you know, we'd had lots of discussions and we really have the luxury of time. So I will often have up to an hour um, with a woman for an appointment so I really have the luxury of, of being able to hear and listen to their stories. And, you know, you ask women usually, how was your birth? And they say, oh, OK. And then you say, well, how was your birth really? And then it all spills out. And, and just these sort of recurrent themes of women feeling traumatised at birth. Mm-hmm. And that really prompted me to think about why is this happening? And what can I do to try to reduce that? level of distress for women because I think particularly here in the United Kingdom and I think probably in the United States as well birth trauma was not really well recognized or understood Mm. and often I would see women that had been diagnosed as having depression or anxiety Mm -hmm. and actually they had neither of those things and what was really distressing them was was their birth experience and they were feeling very traumatized by that right And I think there's there's so many uh, myths and misconceptions about birth trauma. You know, so birth trauma is a subjective experience of birth. So it it doesn't mean that you've had a medically difficult or dangerous birth. Mm -hmm. It means that there's been something subjective about that experience that's been overwhelming and frightening and fearful. So often it's not about the mechanics of birth at all it's about the way women feel they're treated or listened to or heard during labor it's often about communication and language rather than medical emergencies it can be a medical emergency that causes the trauma but invariably i find it's not it's it's about women being in a very vulnerable position perhaps being a first-time mother, not really understanding what's happening mm-hmm. and being very out of control. And people perhaps say talking about them, not to them, talking over them, not involving them in choices and communications. And that can be the trauma. It can be unbelievably distressing. We see a lot of it here in the United States mm-hmm. too, especially mm-hmm. over the last five to ten years, I'd say. Primarily because um, we have such a high C-section rate here. And so many women um, report, what women talk to me about in their birth trauma is either feeling like they were um, disregarded, 
not respected, not listened to, and then pushed into this cascade of interventions they didn't want, but they just felt like they didn't have any power to stop it. And it ended up with a C-section or a traumatic birth that they didn't want. And that's one thing that they people, women talk to me about in terms of trauma. But the other thing I hear an awful lot about is um, women feel they they come through their birth and it was so much more difficult than they had fathomed mm-hmm. and they feel this kind of double-edged sword between feeling really roughed up by how hard their labor was feeling like there's something wrong with them because it was that hard they didn't have this you know twinkly zen birth that they had anticipated but then just also just feeling like the whole experience, they got bullied into it and it was too hard. Yeah, yeah. I Am think, I describing it? Yeah, I think that's a really great description. I think there's two slightly different strands there, aren't there? So There are. I absolutely agree that, you know, yeah. I see a huge proportion of women where it's about that sort of lack of control and feeling coerced. Right. Uh, um, and feeling that they perhaps lose their voice. Um, And and I think that's really difficult for women. So I work with a lot of women who will say, I'm normally so vocal. I'm so used to being able to speak my mind, but I felt that I got trapped within that scenario and lost my voice. Right. And they find that unbelievably distressing. And then it, that cascade of events that just occurs without them feeling they're part of it. But some of, a big, big, big part of giving birth is losing control, literally. You yeah. do have to just let go in order for that baby to come out. And, you know, there's that conflict, that internal conflict of that actually does have to happen. And yet there are so many things about a labor experience that you feel like you want to control. Yeah, and I think that's where the work needs to happen antenatally to -hmm. prepare women better for Mm -hmm. birth. And of Mm -hmm. course, in some ways, you can't prepare for birth because you can't predict it, you don't know what's going to happen. But I think that what's really lacking, I think, in our system, which is midwifery-led, which is great, is that the pressures on the service are that women often lack continuity of care and that comes out time and time again as something that really helps reduce traumatic birth. And that's because you might change shifts in the middle of your yeah. labor. And so you'll have worked with one midwife for a good chunk of your day. And then all of a sudden, it's her time for her to go home. And Absolutely. you get a new midwife who might yeah. not know you as well, may not know the, you know, well, how things have met. been going. You've right. never met. Right. And but also antenatally, you know, at your antenatal appointments, you might see a different midwife each time. Right. You might see them for 10 or 15 minutes. Right. And all the focus is on everything they have to get done, of course. Sure. So, you know, it's very physically orientated checks, blood tests, screening. Mm-hmm. And then in the NHS, they will typically have one discussion about the birth plan. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's it. And I think what needs to happen is that women and their partners need to think much more realistically about birth. Mm -hmm. You know, think about, okay, think about what you might like to happen. 
but how will you cope if that can't happen or if something changes or if something goes wrong? And I think if we had thought more about that antenatally, it would be far less traumatic in labour when some of those things happened. But I also think in labour, actually all it would take sometimes to reduce some of that trauma is somebody calmly and quietly explaining what's happening and why it's happening and involving mum. Because there are very few scenarios in labour that are so life and death that they need to happen in a minute. I know. And yet that's a... That's a myth that is a hard one to bust. So many people um, will say, oh, I had this big emergency C-section. And then when you find out what actually was happening was, yeah, that wasn't an emergency. (laughs) But it's also about, you know, involving the woman still. You know, I... Even if somebody's being prepped for a C-section, there is plenty of time to be talking to them and explaining to them, you know, this is why this is happening. You know, how are you feeling? You know, is there anything that you would like to happen in theatre? You know, there are still a myriad of ways that you can make that experience feel to the woman like she has choice and control. Yeah. Even with you. you know, even within that setting, even if you're running down a corridor to theatre with somebody, mm-hmm. you can still be talking to them as you're running and saying, "I know this seems really scary right now. This is why it's happening," and I just don't think that happens. And so women just feel totally ignored, and and disconnected from the experience. It surprises me how often that doesn't happen. Because I know that the team of labor nurses that I worked with in every facility did their absolute best to be their patient's number one ally and advocate. And they, I've seen a change in the job over the last several decades where it is less patient care focused and Mm -hmm. more computer care focused because there's so much documentation, maybe especially here in the United States, where everything has to be documented, documented in certain ways for insurance purposes. Well, yeah. um, so, you know, a big, a big part of the job of the labor nurse is to, um, you know, click away on the computer. It's a big job and it has to be done. And it gets a bigger weight in priority sometimes than patient care. I think that's true here also to a certain degree. There are so many forms to be filled in and completed and checklists. And I think sometimes people get so fixated with having to do that that it is almost irritating when a woman intervenes and wants something from you because there's a pressure to get the paperwork completed. And And here in in the United States, there's huge pressure on nurses and midwives and doctors to do real-time documentation of labor, which means that while you're checking fetal heart tones or Mm -hmm. helping a woman with her contraction, you're also supposed to have your eyes and hands on the computer, real-time documentation. So, you know, that used to be that we could do our patient care and then go spend 15 minutes at the computer and document that. Mm -mm -mm, Not anymore. Not anymore. 
So yeah, it's we don't have that here, thankfully. Yeah, <laughs> it sounds awful. It sounds impossible to. Well, to I think that. that nurses adapt, and I know that you know this was happening when I was a, working mm-hmm. at the bedside too, and you learn how to provide care differently. And you learn to explain to your patient that, hey, I'm not turning my back on you intentionally. This is part of my job too. And you just, you change your shtick and do it differently. Yeah. I mean, I think my worry is, is with all, is that what it leads to over time alongside the team being unbelievably busy and traumatize themselves in a way through everything that they're seeing without space to process it right just a gradual erosion of kindness and compassion and basic care and I really worry about that and I think that's what women talk to me time and time again about is just feeling that the care was okay but just not kind or compassionate and there's been a lot of really good research that's shown that in terms of the care provision during labor, that sort of neutral care that's just about okay, mm-hmm. is actually as harmful and as traumatizing as overtly negative and hostile care. That and makes I, sense to me because yeah, it's, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. it's such a vulnerable time. You are so vulnerable when you're becoming a mother and giving birth and going through labor. And you need somebody there who is going to see you and know you and be able to, you know, make that personal connection. Yeah, and just, and you know, a tiny bit of kindness will go a long, long way. So far. And, so I, t- and far. I talk to my students about it all the time, you know, do not be fearful to be human with people and touch them, hold their hand, you know, yeah. support yeah. them. Not everybody will like that, and you will learn over time who wants that and who doesn't. But a tiny gesture like that, to a woman can make them feel so supported. Yeah. And, and in reality, it takes five seconds and it costs nothing. But yeah. to the woman, it's just unbelievably helpful at that time. To all the labor nurses out there who are saying, yeah, but you know what? Sometimes instead of having one-to-one patient care, what I have is three-to-one and I have three patients in labor or I have all of this stuff going on. And I don't have the time to provide that one-to-one care all the time. And that is actually probably true. But what you can do is you can say to your patient, things are going crazy on the unit right now, but you are really important to me. What can I do for you right now? And, you know, just do that every now and again. It's quality, not quantity. It is. And you can give your your patient permission to say, you know, if you say to me, I need you right now, I will be there. Absolutely. Give your patient permission. It's language as well. You know, so things like saying, I'm your nurse for today. So the onus of, you know, you're the one leading the care. Right. You're, You're the most important thing. And, you know, how long does it take to explain you know, I'm, I'm so sorry, it's really busy today. I'm looking after, you know, two other women. But if you need me at all, don't hesitate. You know, right. I'm here for you. Right. And invite the, the partner or um, yeah. husband into that conversation and say, I need you to do this for me. If I seem distracted and you're 
I'm not giving her what she needs. Please tell me. Yeah, I think there needs to be a much greater involvement of dads and partners because they, you know, we increasingly know that they're often getting traumatized as well. Yeah. They often feel very lost in the space and the room. Yeah. And I think. Go ahead. Go ahead. (laughs) I think, you know, just, uh, you know, going back to the antenatal discussions about birth as well, I think if partners were involved a lot more in that discussion, then it would allow them to be a voice in labor if the woman temporarily feels unable to speak because she's labeled she's in pain you know it gives them uh permission to to use their voice as well to improve the experience i like that you focus on midwives and doctors and and nurses and their trauma as well because um you know that is that the experience of birth comes from a point of relationship and community it's a temporary little community that you only get on your birthday mm-hmm. it's your nurses your midwives your doctor whoever else is providing ancillary support you got this little team this tiny community who is there during this moment some of the people in your community might be feeling pretty rough too we do our very best as professionals to keep it out of the birth room but you know we do bring ourselves and our experiences and our history with us to your birth as well. Yeah, of course. And, you know, I do not in any way want to ever demonize any member of, of the team. And I have the utmost respect for, for people working in the NHS on labor wards because they are tough places to work. They work incredibly hard for yeah. not, not a huge amount of money. They work long shifts. And the stakes are really high. Yeah, and and it's a yeah. you know it's a risky place to work. Mm-hmm. Um, but I and I really worry that we don't look after and prioritize the health of the team enough. So what I mean by that is, I think that they're so busy, um, and it's relentless, and they're herring from one case to the next, and. You know, in any one day, they might be seeing somebody who's had a huge bleed. They might have a stillbirth. They, you know, they're exposed to these things day in, day out. Mm-hmm. And I think they have very little time themselves to just stop and pause and reflect um, and have a space to talk through anything that might be on their mind and, and troubling them. Right. And what we do, you know, locally, which has just been amazing, is... We have a dedicated reflective space um, with a, a psychologist there and it's a session that anyone can drop into. It's got a set time, it happens every week and whoever's around on the team can drop in and out of it as they wish. And over time it's just become a really amazing powerful space where people can offload, sometimes people might cry and we all end up crying. Mm-hmm. Um, but it really reinforces that sense of the team being valued and cared for and supported because you can't give emotionally if, if you've got nothing left, if nobody's supporting you. And I think it's really helped the team to thrive because they feel like women in labor, listened to, heard, valued, respected. Um, and you know, initially there was, I think there was some reluctance about it and some people were a bit skeptical about it. 
but it's become the most amazing forum and it's really helped in particular I think different groups of professions say perhaps midwives and doctors perhaps who sometimes historically haven't necessarily understood each other's roles at times them to really connect um, and it's it's led to a really healthy team and that in turn has led to much better care for women so you're so writing a, a book about, about this, this right? I am, right I am I am writing a book about birth trauma as we speak mm-hmm. um, which is really been exciting to do so I've been very very lucky to have the generosity of a group of women that have offered to tell me their birth stories. So it's focusing on different themes of birth trauma. Each story has a different theme. So say that lack of control or not being listened to. Um, And then it's very much about providing uh, lots of information about treatment choices because there are a huge amount of choices and options for birth trauma. There's no one right treatment. And it's just about getting information out there, like understanding that birth trauma is real, that it exists, that it needs to be validated with women and offering them sources of support in the community where they can access help. Yeah, good. That's a book that needs to be out there. Uh, Yeah, yeah. I think so. There are some excellent books out there already, um, Mm -hmm. but probably not so much British-based. So there's a beautiful book um, written by um, uh, in Australia called How to Heal a Bad Birth, which is beautiful. But I don't think there's been anything specifically looking at women living in the United Kingdom. But it won't it won't just be applicable to women in the United Kingdom because a lot of the different um, treatment resources can be accessed wherever you live. So, you know, thinking about things like diet and exercise, for example, that can be accessed wherever you live. Mm-hmm. Well, it is a universal experience. You know, yeah. I, I'm really fortunate to um, work in the global maternal health field as well as the United States birth world. And the things that we're talking about right here, right now, are the same things that women in Nigeria and Afghanistan and Nepal are talking about. Mm. The need to be heard, to be able to direct their own births to the best of their ability, to be supported. You know, the simplest things, the simplest things. Everybody's talking about the same thing. And it really comes down to how we, it comes down to gender equity issues it comes down to how we value women and their roles in society. It comes down to all of that. And ultimately, it comes down to being kind and compassion and treating people as equal human beings on the planet. Yeah, I agree totally. It, it's really about respecting women and their experience and their choices. And absolutely, I hear the same themes from from women from all over the world. So... Where I work in East London is a, is a very, very diverse community. Mm-hmm. Um, 50% of the women that I work with are Bangladeshi in mm-hmm. origin. Um, and I have women from all over the world that are living in London. And it doesn't matter. It's, there, it's the universal themes are the same, regardless mm-hmm. of someone's cultural background. Yep, it's the same. 
no matter where you're given birth. Well, Becca, you and I have been talking for quite some time now, and I do have a couple more questions before I let you off the hook. You ready? I'm ready. How would you fill in the blank? Nobody ever told me that. Wow. Gosh, so many things that I could answer that. Go for it. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Well... Gosh, I'm actually almost speechless as to what to say, which is a rare occurrence. I'm thinking of some things that are probably too rude to say, so I shouldn't say Oh, no, say it, say it. (laughs) No, no, no. Oh, Um, okay. (laughs) Nobody ever told me that. Nobody ever told me how hard motherhood can be. Mm. having a baby I heard lots of stories positive stories which were great but I think nobody ever told me truthfully pre giving birth about what it meant to give birth and I think that's probably something that's really spurred me on professionally is about to have more realistic discussions about birth and to support women through that process because I think you know, that's where my interest in trauma has sprung from, is being real about birth. Not frightening women, um, but being more real about birth and motherhood. I wish that somebody had told me about that. Do you suppose you would have really, really gotten it if they had told you? Well, or is this the kind of thing that you can hear about it, you can yeah. prepare for it, but there's no way to know until you have... I think partially, yeah, I think partially you can't understand till you've done it yourself. Right. But I I think I wish that people had been a bit more real about things with me. And I think that would have helped me. So I think, you know, I I wouldn't say that I necessarily had a traumatic birth myself, Mm -hmm. but I definitely had a challenging birth with my first child. It was very long. It was. It, it, I didn't have great communication from the team. It ended up being quite medical towards the end, and and I was certainly traumatized to a degree afterwards. I was quite anxious for a while, um, and I wish. I think that if people had explained to me a bit more about what might happen, rather than sort of me expecting that it would all be this wonderful plan that would you know, go exactly as hoped for, it would, it would have helped to a certain degree. And that's even with me working, you know, being a doctor, seeing lots of births. I still think that we don't have that sort of carefully nuanced discussion about birth. Mm -hmm. We talk about, you know, what do you want or what do you don't want, but we don't talk about the sort of gray area. Yeah. And I think we could do a lot more to talk about that in a meaningful way. I think so too. Because, you know, it's, I encourage people to go into their births with um, birth plans, but it's not a contract. It's not a commitment. It's not a rigid way that things have to go because, you know, from the very start, parenthood, pregnancy, labor, all of it is about flexibility. And I think that people really need to know what to do in the gray area, 
where they have to be flexible, where, you know, some coping because skills. It's the gray area that's the most frightening. Yeah. Because it's unknown. Right. And you've got no map, internal right. map, for how do I negotiate this? Yeah. Whilst at the same time, perhaps you're, you're, you're tired, you're laboring, you're in pain, and right. you don't know how to negotiate this. Right. And that's the most terrifying part of it all. So I think if we could have those discussions about the what-ifs and the, some of the unknowns, that, mm-hmm. that would be so helpful. Yeah, yeah. Well, then my last question for you is this, and you get to answer it any way you want. <laughs> Where are you in your life as a mom? As a mom? Yeah. I'm, I'm in such a good place as a mom. I, motherhood has been just the most beautiful thing for me. It has brought me so much joy. I have two gorgeous children and they are 10 and nearly eight. Mm. So I'm in that phase where they're a bit more independent. They don't need uh, monitoring every second of the day, but they still think I'm quite cool. You're in the sweet spot, honey. spot I just it's just a joy and I keep telling them you know in a couple of years you won't want to hang out with me and you'll think I'm so uncool so I am making the absolute most of this time because it is just gorgeous are they boys or girls one of each oh great and they might want to hang out with you they, they still, might. well, I really hope so. They, they're quite convinced that they will, and they're outraged that I should suggest otherwise. So I'm hoping that they very much want to hang out with me still. But think, I'm making the most of it just in case. I think that that is the number one thing that parents project on their children's teenage yeah. years. They project that their children won't like them, that their children won't want to be with them, and that they even set that up a little bit. I think it's really possible for parents to get through the adolescent and teen years, certainly not smoothly, because that's not what that time of life is about. But our kids still want to hang out with us. They still want to, you know, it it doesn't have to be that way. Yeah, I, I mean, yeah. I had, you know, my, my teenage years with my mom and dad were pretty straightforward. We didn't have any major big difficulties, and I still spent a lot of time with them whilst doing lots of naughty things that they didn't know anything about. Um, right. <laughs> or quite, quite happily. So I, I'm hoping that we can follow the same model. Perfect. Um, I certainly didn't have, you know, any major traumatic teenage years myself. So yeah. I'm hoping that we can follow that model here. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, Becca, this has been a lovely conversation. I've really enjoyed it. And I hope that when your book is written and published and um, – a bestseller that you'll come back on the pod and we'll talk about all of this some more yeah that would be fantastic thank you so much for having me here I really enjoyed talking to you mama said there'll be days like this there'll be days like this mama said mama said mama said okay that's it for this week everybody thanks for listening and we'll be back with more next week you can find Dr. Moore over on Twitter at Dr. underscore BJM you can find me on Twitter at Jean Faulkner. I'll spell my name J-E-A-N-N-E-F-A-U-L-K-N-E-R. My website is jeanfaulkner.com and my email is jean at jeanfaulkner. You can find us on Facebook and Instagram at Common Sense Pregnancy. 
Come find us and help us spread the word about this good long conversation we're having. Common Sense Pregnancy, Parenting, and Politics is produced by Alex Ward at Sounds Like Pictures Studios. Bye, everybody. 